Facebook. Welcome to the Drunken Disorderly Podcast. We are live. It's happening. We're here. And I'm very sorry that we're late. That's completely my fault. Um, I need to stop eating terrible foods on uh, podcast nights. Uh, we are brought to you by The Launchpad Media. Go to www.thelaunchpadmedia.com for all of your podcasting needs. Check out the blast off. Nice guys finish free. And uh, I was on a podcast uh, called Sounds Like Liberty. Uh, and that that episode went up on Wednesday. So you should definitely go check that out. Um, you get to hear me nerd out about Dungeons and Dragons and Brandon Sanderson, who's the greatest fantasy author alive or dead. Um, fight me. It is what it is. Uh, you can see on the screen below all of our links. Uh, there's our YouTube channel, our subscribe star, because you want to give us money um please yeah we're gonna talk about that too okay about why you need to give us money and then our anchor link is for the audio version uh you can check all of those out uh or you can just google um drunken disorderly liberty uh we're on facebook.com slash dnd liberty uh that's basically everything um we're on yeah. youtube and anchor and twitch and yeah well, those are on the bottom all those places on the bottom too are we're everywhere everywhere uh well we're not really on twitch yet we're still working on that but uh and please remember if you're watching us on a watch party tonight it's difficult for us to monitor your comments but if you'll come to the drunken disorderly liberty page on facebook make your comments there it'll be a lot easier for us to track them take us away dre well hello everyone um God, it's hot. It's hot as hell here. So I've started weird. I'm still remember if you're watching us on a watch party tonight, it's difficult for us to monitor your comments. The drunken disorderly liberty. Make comments there. Oh, it's okay. Like, okay, that's not me. Nope. Okay. So, oh, as I was saying, I started a new job recently and I'm so I've uh, one second, Mary. You'll want to now navigate away from that page. Okay. There you go. There we go. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so uh, yesterday I actually got to work with Zach for a little bit, and it was weird sober. That is right? a first. So Tell me all about this. How was that? Because I can't imagine. Like we right, have all worked together for a long time, but sober is a whole different deal. Running meetings for DCLP or that other thing we all used to work for. It's, you know, it's a given that I'm going to be a little altered. And this was a whole new experience. And Zach was teaching me. <laughs> Whoa. You know, he does that on occasion on other things. You know, it's a lot of back and it's a lot of cross training here on all, the, all these projects that we do for sure, for sure. I'm actually an expert at our job, though. Like, I, I'm just going to talk shit for a minute. I am the best. And Jeremy can back me up on this. Who's floating around the comment section. There's a couple people who are as good as me, but no one that's better. All right. Well, guess where I'm going to be coming with all of my questions. And I will demand answers immediately. <laughs> Your IM is going to be blowing up. So anyway, without further ado, let me was it tedious? Was like was it an easy give and take, or was it kind of a struggle? 
Oh, it was easy. It, you know, after learning to work with Zach over a year, two years ago, it's uh, it's pretty easy no matter what we're working on. Except when he approaches me all light footed and I think it's going to be some big thing he's got to tell me not to do anymore. And he's like, oh, hey, can you just, you know, whatever. And I'm like, just be blunt. Just tell me the thing. And you're done. <laughs> it was a big deal. Zach, is that intentional? Are you trying to make her nervous? No, I just, I don't like conflict. So anytime I have to approach either one of you, because you're both kind of mouthy on occasion, and I don't want to start a fight. Listen, Um, just go with it. You know, we like the bullet points, blunt, just fine. He sent you those messages where he's like, hey, um, so there's something I wanted to talk to you about, but... I don't want us to not be cool because I I need you to know I really love and respect you. There's just something. Does he do that to you too? Okay, he's way more scared of you than he is of me. <laughs> you liar. Okay, fine. From now on, it's going to be, hey, bitch, you need to get this fixed. <laughs> That's fine. That's what I want to hear. That Introduce is like, our all right, guests. Done. Yes. All right. Without further ado and any more rudeness, please welcome our guest, Dr. Murray Sabrin author of Why the Federal Reserve Sucks. Hello, sir. How are you this evening? And here it is. (laughs) Here it is. The book that hopefully will take us back to a a better time when the the Federal Reserve either did nothing to create these bubbles or we didn't have a Federal Reserve and the dollar was as good as gold as what the original founders intended when they said only gold and silver should be used as money in the Constitution. So, Doctor, I was watching a, uh, a podcast that you were on recently, <clears throat> earlier today, like I do when all of our guests come on, and you said something very interesting to me. Um, you know, as it is now, the Fed regulates interest rates for everybody, and you were saying that's bullshit, and, you know, they were like, well, what should be the alternative? And you're like, the market should, just like any other consumables, consumables that consumers are it you know demanding supply and demand should regulate that so how how would that work as somebody who i i think i know about this much about economics but i know i know more than bernie sanders well that's not very hard because uh <laughs> the, you put the democrats together in one room i don't think they could pass an economics 101 test because uh, everything they say is so fallacious it's been it's been uh all their ideas have been have been criticized for the last 200 years, starting with Adam Smith's um, uh, The Wealth of Nations. Basically, banking is an intermediary. Banks are intermediaries between savers and um, borrowers. So when you put a dollar into the bank, if you have a checking account, the way a free market banking would work is that the bank would have to keep the dollar in reserve because you have the right to take that money out any time you want to. So this way, the bank could would be required to hold 100% reserves for us for checking accounts. Now, for savings accounts, it becomes a little bit trickier because the banks, as uh, we were discussing before we went on the air, if a bank wants to make a one-year loan, it should have a one-year CD to back up that one-year loan. And if it wants to make a five-year loan, it should have a five-year CD. So there's a match between the time of the deposit and the time of the loan. And that's what a free market banking system would look like. Instead, what we have is the bankers from day one, actually going back hundreds of years, operate under fractional reserves. In other words, they put away 10%, 20%, 30% or more of the depositor's money and loaned out the rest. And through the multiplier effect, uh, that money would multiply in the economy and that would cause prices to rise because 
there would be a multiple increase in the money supply and that's what give us inflation and eventually the bust as people got nervous about the uh the ability of the banks to pay off their depositors and if everyone saw the movie it's a wonderful life which will be coming up soon in november december there's a bank run at the end of the movie of the bailey savings and loans and what does um george bailey portrayed by jimmy stewart say well i can't give you the money because that money's tied up in uh john's house because we gave him a mortgage for 10 or 20 30 years so that's the fallacious the fallacious structure of the banking system and that's one of the reasons we have the federal reserve because the banks know this or at least because they operate on the fractional reserves and they needed a backstop one of the original goals of the federal reserve was to be a lender of last resort why do you need a lender of last resort because they're operating on the fractional reserves and that's what the banks have been doing is getting bailed out except from 29 to 32 when we had the great depression and people were going to the banks to get uh, their money out and the banks overextended themselves during the 1920s and the whole banking system came crashing down so what did roosevelt institute Fra uh depositor insurance so had, at that time, I think it was $2,000. You were insured up to $2,000. Now it's up to $250,000. So the depositors are insulated from the fallacious structure of the banking system by the government. So eventually this system will have to be changed. When? We don't know. I have some ideas since I've been studying this for nearly a half a century. I think what's going to have to happen is that people around the world who use dollars will say, we want alternative currencies, whether it's the euro or the yuan or, or gold or Bitcoin or whatever the case may be. And the dollar is challenged as the international reserve currency. So right now, the U.S. government and the Federal Reserve has the ability to dominate the U.S., the world economy, because most transactions around the world are conducted in dollars. When that process stops, that's when it's checkmate and we have to reform our federal government. We have to uh, make sure the budget is balanced. Well, the budget is balanced every year, except they borrow a trillion dollars in order to balance the budget. But the point is we're spending right. so much money, both Republicans and Democrats have demonstrated their fiscal irresponsibility in, 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 totally in my lifetime, which is a long time now, that no one is willing to say no in Washington for all the demands put on them by special interest from senior citizens to uh, business people. And business people are probably the biggest culprits. They say they're for free enterprise, but yet they're willing to go to Washington or go to Washington at the first sign of trouble in their own businesses, as we saw during the Great uh, Recession, the bailout of Wall Street and the banks and uh, other institutions, GM and so on and so forth. So we have a fundamental problem in this country. We have taken the whole notion of self-reliance, prudence, fiscal discipline, and turned it on its heads to, with debt and spending and printing money and borrowing money. And we have this huge bubble, not only in the United States and around the world. And unfortunately, it's not going to end well. And we've seen this is the third bubble in the last 20 years. And uh, since I graduated from college, we've seen, what, the seventh recession since 1968-69-70. And um, this process has been going on. That's why I wrote the book, sort of to educate the American people how this process comes about. And if enough people understand it, they'll demand their representatives in Congress say, you've got to do something about this roller coaster economy that we're in because it hurts the very people it's supposed to help, low and middle income people, because they feel the brunt of the recession with unemployment 
and foreclosures. And uh, unfortunately, too many people have taken on debt. And I've just read an article the other day that bankruptcies are starting to accelerate. And that's not good for for the employment situation. And by the way, that's a key indicator for whether we're going through a recession or not. Every time the unemployment rate has gone up from a cyclical trough, the recession begins. And we're at a cyclical trough in unemployment at 3.7, 3.8%. So there's a high probability we're going to see a recession sometime in the next 12, 24 months. No one knows the exact time. But watch the unemployment rate uh, numbers, which come out every month. If that starts creeping up, that means uh, we're, we're heading into a recession, if not already in one. So, Maria, how much do, of this do you think is because even even – People who think they understand economics and what it is really don't. Because for me, for a long time, I was one of those people, right? I thought I had a really good grasp on this. For some reason, I, I like I didn't. Alex Merced um, did a series of videos way back in the mid 2000s, right? Um, covering these things, just little videos. Um, I had detached money from goods. Mm -hmm. I had somewhere, I had some kind of detachment compartmentalization. So when we talked economics, I was only thinking fiat currency, right? I was thinking right. interest rates and I was thinking IRS regs, but I was not making the tie-in. Um, I was under the impression for some reason that economics was a physical science. And really it's not, it's, it's a, a physical, a, a physio socio science, right? It's, it's, it's a social science and a physical science. It's about how we use resources as communities and groups and how we distribute those and and where, where we place value that's really what it's about so in kind of the system you're talking about your goal the ideal situation where we let the market handle it money gets treated much in the same way as potatoes or coffee or gasoline well macy's i think has the perfect answer to this the title of his uh book is his magnum opus Human action. Economics is about people achieving their goals, depending on the time frame. We have short-term goals, we have intermediate-term goals, we have long-term goals. So when I was uh, a New York City school teacher right out of college, I realized that I didn't want to do this for the rest of my life or m rest of my career. And I, one of my goals was to get into graduate school, to get a PhD so I could become a college professor. So I had a long-term goal to get a PhD, which takes a long time. Uh, and eventually I became a college professor in 1985 uh, after getting my PhD in 1981. So I've achieved my lifetime goal of becoming a college professor. And uh, next year will be my last uh, year teaching. I'll have 35 years in. And my goal is to really become an activist for freedom, for liberty, for sound money uh, by writing uh books. I wrote this one on the Fed and hopefully it'll be a big hit over the next several months. I'm currently writing a book on medical care and health care. And so I hope that will uh, change the debate about healthcare in this country uh, next year during the presidential campaign. So uh, I really want to write things that that will that is understandable by the by the average person, so we can have an, a national dialogue about these issues. Because right now it's dominated by how much bigger the government should be. No one's talking about shrinking the size of government. Now that. Trump did get a uh, tax cut passed, but the point is uh, it was it was tied to the upper end and it, they didn't cut spending. So the budget that right. has widened and it was, there are now projections that we're going to see at least a trillion dollar deficit as far as the eye can see, that there's no indication that we'll ever get to a balanced budget. 
and and the, the Fed is in a bind now because if the debt goes up, if the interest rate goes up, then the interest expense will go up and that'll bust the budget. So the Fed is really enabling the federal government to keep on running these deficits by keeping interest rates low. So the federal government will have a low interest rate expense annually because if we had normal interest rates, then the debt service would jump two or three times what it is today. And that would bust, bust the budget and we'd be to, to, to $2 trillion or more deficit. So since I first started learning this 50 years ago, we are reaching the perfect storm of debt, spending, money printing. Now, the one good thing that Trump has been doing has been deregulating a lot of aspects of the economy. And that has really helped small and medium-sized businesses and large-sized businesses because this is part of the cost of compliance, which is a dead weight on, on the private sector. So that is probably the best thing he's done. The tariff things, on the other hand, are the worst things he's done because tariffs are taxes. And who pays taxes? Well, that's a debate that economists have been uh, having for a long time. Is it the producer or is it the consumer or is it the combination of the two? Well, it's basically the combination of the two, but ultimately taxes are paid by the producers. A worker pays the taxes, we pay our income tax, we pay our payroll taxes, we pay our property taxes. So when our taxes go up, we can't say to our employer, we need a raise because our taxes go up. They'll say, forget about it. That's, that's your problem. You speak to your representative. So it's the same thing with producers. When, when tariffs go up, they either have to absorb the tariff, try to pass it along, or try to do half and half, pass some of it along and absorb some of it. So tariffs distort the economy. Everything government does distorts the economy. That's the bottom line that I've learned over 50 years of studying economics. So that's why I've been preaching laissez-faire, free enterprise, limited government. And that would, to use a, a, a cliche, lift all boats. If you're If you have a job, You'll have a higher standard of living. The dollar will be as good as gold. Prices will go down in a very orderly fashion. That's a natural deflation. I realized that back in the 50s when I was a kid, when color TV came, came out in the 1950s, I said, you don't buy t those TVs right away because prices will come down as the production increases. And the same thing with computers, the same thing with cell phones, the same thing with a whole host of items because as supply increases, Consumers benefit because of lower prices. That's a natural economy. And I think that's a good title for a book, How to Create a Natural Economy as opposed to this bubble economy that there we have. I could have, said, I could have used that as the title, to Create a Natural Economy Instead of the Bubble Economy. But I wanted an edgy title. Someone suggested this title. So that's to get your attention. But the <laughs> subtitle is what is really key. The Fed causes inflation, recessions, bubbles, and enriches the 1%. So if the Democrats are worried about income inequality, like we had in the 1920s when the Fed was inflating during the 1920s, we have the same process going on today. And who benefits? And one of the country's wealthiest individuals said this on CNBC years ago, which I quote my book, that we, the 1%ers, love the Fed because asset values go up. And who owns most of the stocks and bonds and real estate? It's the 1% in the economy. Right. So there's nothing terribly um, difficult about understanding this. It's just a matter of spreading the word. So I'm really grateful for the opportunity to get this on videotape so uh, we can spread this all over the Internet. And uh, maybe we'll have a million views. I don't know. But if we had a million views and a million people bought the book, uh, I think it could be a game changer because then the mainstream media would have to engage me and have the people in, at the Federal Reserve explain this crazy notion that their goal is to give us 2% inflation. 
Now, I don't know about anybody else, but I don't go into a store and say, please, our price is 2% higher than a year ago. Otherwise, I'm not going to buy it. Or if right. price is not higher than 2% years ago, I'm going to pay 2% more than a year ago. This is insane economics. It's not voodoo economics. It's insane economics. And this is the same mistake that they've made in the 1920s because in the 1920s, prices were flat, even though prices should have been coming down because of the great productivity of the 1920s. Instead, prices were flat. Most economists said, hey, there's no inflation. Everything is great. The stock market is, is through the roof. Prices are flat. Therefore, there's no problem. Yet what happened? October 29, 90 years ago, this October, and I'm hoping to have a symposium on the crash of 29, what lessons did we learn? Apparently nothing, because they did not any mistakes they did in the 1920s. And ironically, I start off my book by quoting Greenspan from his 1966 article, Gold and Economic Freedom, which I read exactly 50 years ago, where he criticizes the Fed for doing exactly what he did to give us the dot-com bubble and the housing bubble. So you can't make this stuff up. Greenspan 1.0 was a hard money guy. Greenspan 2.0 was a Keynesian who wanted, who created money and gave us these bubbles. So it's it's just so ironic that we here we are in 2019 and uh, Greenspan still hasn't had a mea culpa for what he did to the economy with the two bubbles back to back. You know, while we're talking about buying the book, Murray, I want to put a pitch out there. Look, to everybody watching, this book is going to make a great Christmas present for all of your high school-aged kids, for your college-aged kids, your kids, your friends, your nieces and nephews who are getting ready to to move out into the real world. And as well as your elected officials. Yeah, your elected officials, man. What a thoughtful gift for your we governor, your congressman, so. your senator. If you I buy the book, there's a discount. So... For all your holiday needs, as well as your local elected officials, buy in bulk, buy 10, buy 20, and uh, you'll get a little discount. It's not exactly expensive to begin with. And send it out to all the people that you know who could use it. I'm Mess sure. Message me on Facebook, and I will um, get you in touch with the, with the publisher. And uh, to get the discounts, you have to order 50 books. But if people pool their resources together in a local community, they can distribute the book to the community and have a have a, a book discussion in their community about the book, what the ideas are <laughs> in the book, and how we can get back to sound money, which is basically the foundation of our economy. But there were people right from the beginning that wanted to inflate. And guess what? We got the first Great Depression in 1819, and the great libertarian Austrian economist Murray Rothbard wrote about that in uh, the 1950s, The Panic of 1819. And I use it in my financial history class. It's a wonderful book that describes all the events leading up to 1819. And guess what? It's an outgrowth of the War of 1812. So what do we notice? War and inflation and depression are hand in hand. So we have- You know what? Don't we have, we have Cliff Maloney coming on soon, don't we? Don't we, Dre? We do, we do, so we do. I have a cool idea. Um, hopefully we have people watching who are members of Young Americans for Liberty. Hopefully you have a campus organization. There's you likely have a um a mirror organization, a democratic socialist organization, or a, a democratic young Democrats of America <laughs> organization. Wouldn't it be a wonderful, wonderful gesture if YAL campus clubs campus organizations all across the country if you bought these gifts of this book for all the the young democrats at your college 
right? Maybe you do a club gift exchange, your group, their group, you get together, you have a Christmas party, do a gift exchange. Let's help our Democrat friends, family and loved ones understand economics. Like this book, it's the way to do it. Thank you so much. That's a great, that's a great idea. This is this is what I've been doing all my adult life. I've been in education. Now, how do you how do you discuss ideas if you don't have the material, which is the books? And today, uh, you go to the Mises.org website, and all these great uh, classical works are there for free. So uh, my book is not there for free yet. I just was published. But the point is, um, the book uh, for for groups is reasonably priced. I mean, it's really a deep discount for uh, 50 copies or more. And if you if you buy a uh, 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 thousand copies, it's really a deep discount. So if a big organization wants to um, uh, distribute these books to their chapters around the country, they can get a real deep discount. So just message me on uh, Facebook and um, I'll get you in touch with the publisher and you can, um, you can uh, uh, get an order in and the book will be uh, to you. For start of the new academic year is starting in two, three weeks. So what better way to have a national discussion about what should money be, how should uh, we organize our economy so everyone will participate who is ready and willing and able to work and uh, go up the economic ladder. That's essentially what I did as a college professor. I started as a temporary hire and I worked my way up to full professor. And um, it's been a great uh, career because uh, so many students uh, still email me and remember what I said in the classroom 20, 30 years ago. And uh, right now, teaching finance is probably the best time to teach finance, given all the cross currents we have in our economy. Not only now, but internet. I was I was wanting to ask you a few minutes ago how how is it for you on campus lately uh, as far as atmosphere wise talking about liberty and trying to incorporate that into free market economics and teaching your class and just your life on campus all around like because I mean you're a libertarian right yeah so. I mean, I wouldn't say that I feel that we are totally, you know, lepers, but we're not exactly all that, you know, as welcome as all the socialists and people on the left and Democrats. So how how was that for you lately, the last couple of years? Well, uh, ten years, more than ten years, about ten years ago, my wife and I made a, a major donation to the college at the business school to create the Sabrin Center for Free Enterprise, which do, which everyone could go to the rhymeapplaud.edu website and find out our activities. And I brought a lot of free market people on campus, Tom DiLorenzo, Joe Salerno, uh, just uh, all the Austrians that are out there to, to campus. And we've had discussion groups, uh, uh, panelists, discussion uh, groups about different topics. So I'm pleased with what we've done because students don't know what's going on because they never read this material. Do you I get protested or can you have speakers come? Do they get protested? Do they get shouted down? Do no, no, because the, they present their ideas in their books, their their articles that are based upon uh, research, that are based upon uh, uh, years of, um, of, of uh, analysis. And you've got to bring in people that just don't engage in rhetoric, but have evidence to describe how the economy functions. So uh, we've had people like Peter Klein talk about entrepreneurship. That's not a controversial concept, entrepreneurship. It's how the economy works entrepreneurship makes the world go round, so to speak. I mean, you have great entrepreneurs and we've had them throughout history and they've 
built America. These are the people that built America from the 19th century to the 21st century. All the great entrepreneurs that have uh, created the, uh, these companies from a single idea. Uh, and you just go down the list of all of them and all the inventions that were created. So um, I've had Robert Murphy come to campus, uh, Robert Wenzel from economicpolicyjournal.com and targetliberty.com. So I, I brought in a lot of people. Um, so we've had grants in the past to bring people on campus and um, and uh, I'll, I'll try to get many people on campus uh, this coming year. So uh, th these are the people who are people of substance, uh, not just mouthing rhetorical things like the Democrats do uh, about income inequality. Uh, to be fair, sir, many, 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 many very reasonable, many respected, very researched people have been shouted down for their, Recently, you know, yeah. yeah, for their very reasonable research and ideas. So that's why I was curious, even though, you know, finance isn't typically uh, uh, controversial, but these days seeing that's a wall is controversial. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I wonder if it's because of, of the, the, the context of the subject, right? Uh, economics is not considered to be philosophical. Yes, there, there are components of philosophy and economics, but for the, for the most part, it's the, we're talking about a science and, and not a philosophy. And I think a lot of the other things that people are talking about, especially even things like human rights, because there's a moral implication, mm -hmm. uh, I, I think it takes on kind of a different feel. And I, I wonder if it's just the subject. Well, the thing is, I teach two technical courses, uh, uh, Corporate Finance One, which is basically accounting expanded to the financial world and then uh, securities investments, which is just how the markets work. And then financial history, where you get into a little po politics because you deal with dealing with uh, regulations and uh, intervention uh, throughout American financial history. So we get into some of the issues. But what I do in the first uh, week of cor the course is I have them read some of the classical uh, free market material, if you will, I pencil the uh, great uh, I pencil. The great little monograph by Leonard Reed about, um, about the autobiography of a pencil, which is which shows how an economy works, uh, the integration, uh, the, the division of labor, this international specialization. And then I have them read uh, Murray Rothbard's What Has the Government Done to Our Money, which is probably the best introduction to money ever written. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, I may introduce uh, the law this year the Bast by Bastiat uh, about uh, how you organize society based upon some fundamental uh, legal principles which he discusses which is what i'm incorporating in my current book that i'm writing on on healthcare. um and you so know, you can get copies of eye pencil and the law along with a couple other publications for free from fee yeah fee.org um, yeah yeah so go to fee.org if you're a group or an organization you can get these as teaching tools they're called liberty kits um if you don't have these if you're a county affiliate if you're a Toastmasters group, if you're an, an educational organization within the Liberty Movement and you don't have these 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 essays, I mean, they're essays, um, you need them. Get them, go to fee, get them for free, sign up for a Liberty, Liberty Kit. It takes a little while, but it's really, really worth it. There's so many free resources online that uh, teachers can use either at the... Uh uh, K through 12 level, or especially the high school level and the college level. Uh, these are just wonderful tools. And the nice thing about it is I show students how you, how they're interdisciplinary. 
so in corporate finance one, when we talk about interest rates, uh, that's in chapter two, you have to talk about the Federal Reserve and, uh, and how the Federal Reserve impacts interest rates and why we have recessions and depressions. So Rothbard wrote a wonderful uh, lengthy essay in, back in 1969, Economic Depressions, Causes and Cures, which is uh, a pretty sophisticated piece, but it's really, really good. And I have students read that, then I show them how this process comes about. And I discuss this in my book uh, on, on the Federal Reserve. I have a little um, a diagram, uh, which I got from the web, about how the Fed creates money and how it affects the economy. And that, I think, is priceless. And then there's another um, uh, little flow chart that I have that I got from Rothbard's uh, great essay, The Case for 100% Gold Dollar, where he shows the, the, the structure of a free market economy. And it's so simple. It, it's, it's really almost like 2 plus 2 equals 4. That's how simple it is. So I have that in the beginning of my book as well. And these are the tools that you sh uh, use to show people that this is just human action that we all engage in. In other words, uh, before you can be a consumer, you have to be a producer because you need income. You get the income by producing something, whether it's a TV show, whether it's a, a book, whether it's a, a farmer or whatever, you earn income because you're meeting somebody's needs in the marketplace and then you in turn can become a consumer. So you're not a consumer first, you're a producer first. Mainstream economics has consumption as the heart of the economy. No, mm -hmm. it's production is the heart of the economy because that allows you to get the income, the money, <coughs> which then allows you to become a consumer. So I tell my students, I can't get a paycheck unless I first teach you. So I'm producing educational services that allow me to get paid so that I can consume the things that I want for me and my wife. Yeah. It's just common sense, simple yeah. economics. And you can't argue with it because that's the way the world works because my colleagues all get paid. Students are working and going to college, so they get paid to pay for their either education or for their uh, expenses if they're living um, outside the home. So again, economics is, is the most common sense discipline that we have. And finance is really uh, an adjunct to it because you need money and financial institutions for the whole process to work. And so by showing the integration of economics and finance and management and entrepreneurship and marketing, you get a total picture of what business is all about. And I think that's the strength I bring into the classroom is um, since my background is in social studies education, I think I consider my, I, I am, I think, uh, a person that integrates different disciplines to show how the world works, which is what we're trying to do at the college level. How does the world work and how do you make it better um, from different reasons? That's why I'm a, uh, in my book on healthcare, so I'm jumping ahead. I'm leaving the book on the Fed aside. Uh, I talk about nonprofits and how nonprofits can, should be an integral part of uh, the medical care system for uh, un the uninsured. But getting back to the Fed book, and the Fed distorts all this stuff, and the and taxation distorts all this stuff. So in the 1990s, I wrote a book on how we can create a tax-free society called Tax-Free 2000. So this is the second volume in the in the trilogy. Next one would be dealing with healthcare and uh, medical care. So we can create a tax-free society. We can get back to uh, uh, a sustainable economy so we don't have these bubbles, which are really painful. I mean, anyone who went through the 2008, 2007, 2008 recession unscathed, uh, congratulations. But there are people who went through bankruptcy, who lost their homes, who lost their businesses, who lost their jobs. <laughs> And some of them still haven't recovered. So uh, the, 
the people that are really hurt by these bubbles are is, is who I dedicate the book to, the working families of America, which are low and middle income families. So because I know it's coming, it, it's not in the chat bar yet, but it will be. <laughs> you want to hit him with our obligatory question? Sure, because Justin is in the comments. I can't believe he hasn't asked yet. But doctor, how do you feel about nuclear energy? Well, any energy that is um, that is uh, clean, that is um, uh, provides uh, the consumer with uh, low uh, uh, energy costs, uh, uh, utility costs. I'm all for it, but there has to be strict liability. I mean. Uh, the, the owners of the nuclear plants have to be responsible for any problems that may arise. And uh, that's, I think, the, 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 the touchy part, because I think it's still on the books that I think there's a federal um, blanket for, to protect nuclear plants from any sort of um, major catastrophe. So that's, again, an example of crony capital. Right. They have protections like they won't be held accountable if there's a spill. I, th I think there is. Um, uh, I think they're limited to like five hundred million dollars in damages. I think the, the federal government picks up the rest. I haven't investigated this in a long, long time, but I think that's out there. So people can Google what is the federal role in uh, nuclear power. But uh, again, the government should not be subsidizing anybody because that this the marketplace. That's the Agreed. bottom line. Agreed. Whether uh, farmers, gas producers, oil producers. Uh, Look, if you're building a house next door to me, you buy the property next door to me and you're building a house and in that process, you manage to drop a tree on my roof, right. you're absolutely responsible. Absolutely. But with this protectionism and the cronyism that we see at the, at the federal level, that is not the case for many, many, many producers. Yeah. Uh, they, can, they can do damage and they have a very limited liability. And that... <laughs> That's one of the things that we push back against all of the time. When we talk about the need for a small government, that's part of it. Um, the larger an organization is, the more difficult oversight, appropriate oversight becomes. The smaller that it is, the better that oversight can happen. And that's how you prevent these types of protections being given to certain special interest groups. So how do we make sure we don't regulate it, though? I'm sorry. How do we make sure it's not overregulated? Well, that's the that's the tricky part. I, I mean, Washington is just swarming with lobbyists. I mean, why are they there? They're there to protect some special interest by getting legislation passed that benefits them, or getting grants or subsidies, whatever the case may be. And uh, this is this is crony capitalism that's been around since day one. Alexander Hamilton, Tom Lorenzo calls him in his book um, Hamilton's Curse, uh, the father of crony capitalism in America. So we, we got to get rid of crony capitalism and, and let the business people stand on their own two feet and, um, and let individuals stand on their own two feet. But we have an, a social safety network. It's a nonprofit sector. The mutual aid societies that have been around for, for decades, that really is the local response to people in need uh, uh, who are tied by either ethnicity, uh, profession, whatever the case may be, union. Um, and that, that's how America grew and, and became a strong uh, country throughout the 19th century. And the Great Depression, by the way, was the defining moment to switch the country from a limited government republic to this welfare warfare state. And here's where we are today. Well, and Dre, you and I actually know a libertarian activist who for the last couple of years has been playing around with the idea of, of actually starting and forming a libertarian mutual aid society. Um, just as a way to kind of set the example, most of those have have fallen to the wayside 
there are still a few um, largely religious yeah. um, different churches have some. Yeah. Um, the, the Lutheran church offers a, a an insurance for aging that can kind of help pay for nursing homes and things like that. So some of those churches have those things. But Charlie Larkin was talking about trying to start a, a libertarian mutual aid society. It, That's it, a great it, idea. A voluntary retirement program. It'd be well, cool, yeah, right? The Mormon church, you have Christian sharing networks for health care, for medical yeah. care. Uh, there are all sorts of uh, permutations and combinations out there based upon voluntary action as opposed to uh, what I call trickle-down economics from the federal government from state government. That's the real trickle-down economics we have in this country. And the Democrats are all for it. They think trickle-down economics is tax cuts that uh, trickle down from the wealthy to the to low-income folks. That's 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 just a misrepresentation. Trickle-down economics is when money goes from the people to the government, then it trickles down to us in all these programs that we have. We have we probably have tens of thousands of programs from the federal government. The big ones, of course, being Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, CHIP, and all these other programs. I mean, it just goes farm aid. It just goes on and on and on. Yeah. And you need the bureaucracy to implement these programs. And you need tax collectors to collect the taxes. So that's a total point on the economy. And so that's why if we had more free enterprise in this country, we would have people doing productive work, creating more goods and services, and prices would be going down for everybody. And well, yeah, this, I, this I, I don't think most people know, but the, the food stamp program is not part of health and, and urban development. It's not health and human services. It's part of the Department of Agriculture. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is a way to, to, to get surplus uh, products into the marketplace without uh, without uh, disturbing the prices. So, right. uh, again, th this it's is about it's the it's the government literally taking control of supply. Yeah. And demand. Yeah, the, the, this is why we don't have a free enterprise economy. We have crony capitalism, and the Republicans claim to be great free enterprises, but they basically haven't done anything in since the New Deal to get rid of these programs. In fact, they've expanded a lot of them. B Bush too, with the what prescription drugs under Medicare. I mean, well, what about the other things? Like when you looked, at, I, I, when I ran for office in twenty sixteen, I remember pulling the numbers, <laughs> and something like forty six, fifty six percent. Of, of the budget for health and human services was set aside for business and, and other investments. So 56% of that budget is there to bail out yeah. um, businesses that kind of work under its own umbrella. Well, again, like I said, uh, these are the terrible distortions because what you look at the Washington, D.C. and the suburbs, that's some of the wealthiest places in the country because all the money that's flowing into Washington, all the lobbyists that are living in the area. Um, I mean, Washington is an artificial <laughs> creation because of the federal government, and it's just grown by leaps and bounds since uh, since World War One. And so we need to cut back. But unfortunately, uh, and this is a conclusion I reached in 1971 when Nixon did wage price controls. We essentially have one party in Washington. It's the Washington Party with two separate wings, the <coughs> Democrats. And they go back and forth in the presidency and in control of the Congress. And what happens? The government keeps on growing, growing and growing and growing. And the irony is, if you look at the data, the federal budget grows most under, Republic, under Republican presidents. And they run as fiscal conservatives. This is the great irony. Look at the budget in the last three years under, under Trump. It's gone through the roof. And if you look at the budget under Obama under the eight years, it was pretty flat 
in real terms. And in Clinton, the last few years, it was pretty flat because the Republicans controlled the Congress under Clinton. And so they put his feet to the fire. Dre, so, could you imagine if you set up your household budget? Yeah. Where the federal government sets up its budget. Uh, it, it would be the how, how long till you'd be homeless? Oh, it would be pretty fast. It would be yeah, there would be people, excuse me, money, please. Yeah, or you can vacate the premises and take. we'll take these things and yeah. Well, this, this be like the economists have basically become apologists for the welfare warfare state. That's the, what the bottom line is. Whether it's Krugman or Joe Stiglitz, both Nobel Prize winners, both who spoke at my college over the years. Sorry, my dog's on the dog side. And th th this is why uh, the economics profession is no longer an independent um, thinking group. They're basically group think about about the Federal Reserve and federal spending. They all think it's a wonderful thing. They just have to manage it better. And so what I did in my book is show that Greenspan and Bernanke, when they were testifying in Congress over the years, didn't know what was going on in the economy because the economy was going through these bubbles and they didn't recognize them. And so it's uh, it's really ironic that uh, uh, Bernanke, who supposedly is a, is a great scholar of the Great Depression, couldn't recognize the bubble that was occurring under his watch. The same bubble that took place in 1920. And now, of course, we have uh, what people have called the everything bubble, which uh, is going to end very badly, unfortunately, because I think this bubble is bigger than the 1920s. And we know how that ended. The market went down 90% from 1929 to 1932. I'm not predicting the market's going to go down 90%, but there is a possibility it could go down 90%. But I think before that would happen, the Federal Reserve would create so many new dollars in order to prop up the stock market. And I think uh, that's what they're focusing on, even though they're not saying it, is they don't want the stock market to have another crash. So, but, Murray, we hear that um, all the time, right, about the shrinking middle class and, and how more people are, are doing worse. And I just I'm really struggling with this. When I look at things um, and try to gauge whether I'm doing better or worse than I was, I don't look at necessarily how much money I'm making every year, right? I don't usually look at that. I look at um, how many hours do I have to work to purchase something? Right. Um, I remember when cell phones first came out, I'm, I am old enough to remember this. And it was like six months salary to buy a cell phone. And now if you're on food stamps, you can afford a cell phone. To me, that is not an indication of us doing worse um, right. at Damn. all. I remember paying, Dre, do you remember paying like a, absorbent prices, just crazy prices for Jordache jeans? You remember when those fuckers came out? Um, I was and then you had to take them somewhere and have them altered because they only had one length. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, when by the time I came on the scene, it was like Guess and Jabot. And, yeah, you had to tight roll those or whatever. But they were expensive as hell. Like, you got one pair or and those better last year. I have two pair of jeans, right? I think I have 12 in my closet right now. No, no, I, no, you know, it's just whatever. You can get any kind of brand you want for 20 bucks. And I mean, and, and the, the comparison everybody wants to make, right, is the housing market. Well, in 1950, you could buy a house for a three bedroom, two bath house for, for $30,000. So, yeah, let's look at those. Compare that house, apples to apples, to the house you're in right now. None of those houses had central heat and air. None of those houses had bedrooms big enough to put a queen size bed in, let alone your big California. Right. You had one bathroom, wall to wall carpet, one bathroom, and you could sit on the toilet and wash your hands at the same damn time. 
<laughs> and then there was one car garage because everybody had one car because there was one breadwinner. No, the, 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 uh, the last uh, 30, 40 years, the areas that I've seen the most inflation has been um, uh, education and medical care. Why? Because government is subsidizing it enormously and regulating it. That, that, that's you can see that from the consumer price index. Those mm -hmm. those numbers have increased dramatically. I remember when a Harvard education was three thousand dollars a year. Now it's what seventy thousand. I don't know how many people pay it, but yeah, but it's seventy thousand because the government guarantees seventy thousand with their damn student yeah. loans. Well, if you go to a private university, go to the University of Tulsa yeah. and walk in because it's a private university. You have massive negotiating power. Yep. Yep. No. Uh, but uh, medical care has gone through the roof. I mean. Uh, I remember as a kid, my parents would take me to the doctor in the 1950s. It'd be five dollars for the visit. And um, how much is that? Because of malpractice and malpractice insurance, though. Oh well, no. Before <laughs> Medicare and Medicaid, so you got to remember what happened in 1965. Yeah. Medicare and Medicaid, which I write about in my in my right. Book. And since then, price of healthcare, medical care, has gone through the roof. So between inflation and increasing demand by Medicare and Medicaid. Prices have skyrocketed. Same thing with pharmaceutical drugs as well. You so, know, our good friend, Dr. Kyle Varner, has a webinar coming up dealing with free market medical, how to pay cash yeah, yeah. for your medical care and, and, and get your bills reduced to like pennies on the dollar. Yep. He has a webinar coming up. So uh, watch our page. We're going to share that link as it gets closer. It's something you definitely want to want to get in on if you want to avoid this stuff. Well, there's a, uh, another concept, direct primary care, where doctors charge patients a monthly fee. It's all cash. There are no third party pay insurance. Uh, yeah. right. And yeah. that is that is the essence of free market where you pay for a service out of pocket and you have insurance for catastrophic losses. My father had a major operation in 1961 at a, at a New York City hospital, one of the top hospitals in the city. He had Blue Cross Blue Shield. He was a blue collar worker. There was uh, very little out of pocket expense and uh, there was no problem. So again, we, there was a time in America where people could pay for medical care and not bankrupt the family. Um, and today uh, the, the cost of a hospital, I think is $2,000 a night in some places, which is- A nursing home average is about $42,000 a year right now. Well, in our area, it's, uh, probably 80 to 120,000 a year. Yeah, that's the, the national average, I think, yeah. is, is it right around 42,000. So yeah. um, if you're a boomer, <laughs> I hope you have insurance, yeah. and there is insurance out there. Well, my wife and I have, uh, have uh, had, had long-term care insurance for a long, long time. So uh, again, it's taking personal responsibility for your needs. If you, if you have the, the uh, if, if for some reason you may have to go into a nursing home or assisted living, you have paid, policy that will pay for those benefits. This is what personal responsibility is all about. Unfortunately, you never hear the Democrats talking about personal responsibility. The Republicans talk about it, but they don't know anything about it. So um, this is what we need in this country is personal responsibility. And I think we would have a much stronger economy because right now we live in an entitlement mentality. What can the government do for me? This is the essence of politics in America today. What can the government do for me? Dre, this is what you talk about all the time. It's why you and John got larried, right? That that yeah. responsibility thing is kind of that's your thing. Totally. I'm responsible for me. Like, you know, that's why, you know, I have a CCW and that's why John and I did what we did. We didn't get married. We did a series of contracts that will 
um, have the least amount of government intervention, but the most amount of protection for us as a couple. So in our state, it was, you know, a cohabitation. It was a power of attorney. It was a, uh, a series of wills and a trust was involved as well. So yeah, I definitely, you know, I will take care of me. I can do that. I'm a big girl. You know, I think everybody can do it if they are an adult and of sound body and mind. And I think that they should have the opportunity to do so. Well, see, this is why in doing all the research I've done over the years, the key component and you, an economist talk about this and so sociologists talk about it is parents are the key. A two parent family is the strongest social policy we could have because they will transmit good values to the children hopefully if they're, if they're, if they're not screwed up themselves right uh, but you need a two-parent family because all the data show a two-parent family will the children will have the, the, the greatest possible outcomes if there's a two-parent family especially in the inner city and, and this to be clear it doesn't matter if those two parents are two women or two men or sometimes unfortunately even two grandparents who are raising a child it's about that teamwork it's about structure it's about values it's about yeah it's about structure it's about valuing yourself respecting other people and um and as libertarians say keeping your hands to yourself that's right not aggression principle yeah it cracks me up libertarianism is literally everything you learned in kindergarten absolutely right? don't like your friends don't take their toys Right. So you guys, um, the outside, the guy that sits next to me gets a call from his kid's preschool. It's his first day. The kid is two, two years old as a little boy. And, um, so, you know, he leaves and he comes back and he tells me what happened. And then they're like, they, he want, they want the daycare wants to send him home because he hit another child. And I was like, Oh, what happened? I'm like, he's two. They hit each other constantly. <laughs> they don't get it yet. You know, but this kid does. He said, uh, the other, he hit the other child because the other kid was hitting a little girl. And he's like, you don't hit little girls. Wow. And he's basically, you know, he's, he had instilled in his son, you know, you don't typically start fights, but you can stick up for other people who can't stick up for themselves. And that's the non-aggression principle, exactly what you teach your kids. You cannot start a fight, but you may defend yourself. You My daughter got, got sent home from school for getting in a fight because she was defending another little girl. A group of boys had this girl pushed up against the wall. And, you know, Serena's got to jump in there. And she did. And she got in the fight. And the school's answer, when I was like, this is ridiculous. And they're like, well, we have a zero tolerance policy. So if somebody punches you and you punch back, you're suspended. You're just supposed to just stand there and get your ass kicked. No, I don't think so. Um, they told my daughter to call for a teacher. Sorry, you call for a teacher. I'm, my kid's going to hit back. Right. You better believe it. And so I went and picked her up and he's like, she's, she's expelled for three days. And I was like, okay. And we got in the car and she said, mom, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm sorry. I got expelled. And I'm like, I'm not, you want to go get ice cream? Right. I, I guess we'll watch TV for three days. This is ridiculous. Yeah. This zero tolerance policy is basically, I don't want to think, I don't want to evaluate each situation as it happens and take all the facts into consideration and then make a decision on who should get punished and you know, what should happen. This is ridiculous. And hey, this was when my daughter guys, was guys were up against our hard time. Oh, and, all right. Shut up. All uh, right. So we have a ton of, Okay, so you guys, 
I, I, we love all of our listeners and our viewers. We love you guys. And we have a, 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 a special request. We need two more subscribers, two more paid subscribers. We have a business need that is not that expensive. Two more subscribers would do it. If you want to subscribe to us for $4.99 a month or $9.99 a month or even $0.99 cents a month, that would help us out. We don't have a lot of overhead, but every dime we make goes back into our business. We do not take a dime. All right. So hang on. We got to give our a guest a chance to wrap. Yes, uh, please. Uh, Murray, any final book. words before we go? Buy the book. book. Why the Federal Reserve sucks. It causes inflation, recession, bubbles, and enriches the 1%. If you go to my uh, blog, murraysaverin.com, you can see the book, the back cover, which has a wonderful endorsement by Ron Paul. You can also see a link. To, uh, not a link, the post of my New York Times letter from 1976, basically predicting what we have today. 1976, I criticized the Federal Reserve back then for creating the, the booms and busts of the 1970s, the, the big recession we had in 73, 75. So I explained why we should go back to the gold standard back then. So I've been doing this for a long, long time. Now is the time for the American people who don't know about money and banking to get the book share it with their friends, get it as a gift for uh, upcoming birthday, whatever, uh, the holiday season. Your congressman. Your congressman. If enough people read it, we will be able to change the debate and, and I will get on TV, national TV, and point out why both Donald Trump and Chairman Fed, uh, Reserve Chairman Powell are wrong about interest rates. We don't need the Federal Reserve manipulating interest rates. We need to go back to a, a, an economy and a and a banking system that is based upon supply and demand as opposed to manipulating interest rates. If right. we had that, we would eliminate the inflation, the recessions, the bubbles, and the wealthy would get wealthy, not because of asset prices going up, but because they're providing goods and services to the people. And so um, that's what I'm hoping for. Get the book. It's available on Amazon. The link is on my blog. And if enough people read the book, I think we can start restoring the U.S. economy to, I think, the principles that Mises, Rothbard, Hazlitt, and all the great free market economists and uh, libertarians have been talking about. We need prosperity for all the people, not just the people that are benefiting from the Federal Reserve policy. But one thing I do know, and this is the strength of America, despite all the things the federal government throws at the American people, we still have a lot of prosperity, as we've discussed. Mm -hmm. the prices right. have come down for a lot of basic necessities, and that's the strength of the, re the resiliency of the free enterprise economy. So you can imagine if all prices were going down every year, and right. the standard of living would go up consistently every year, two, three percent <laughs> for the American people, we would have the best economy, we'd have money flooding in from all over the world, and we would set an example for the rest of the world. So we don't need foreign aid, we can get rid of war, we can get rid of all the other bad things that government does, and uh, I think we will have a libertarian world that I think many of us have been working for for decades. Yeah, guys, right. the link's in the, uh, you'll see it on your screen right now, click the link. Uh, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe Indeed. to our show. Uh, right. Help us do great things. All right, we'll see y'all next. Well, we'll see y'all on Thursday. We got a show coming up. We got Bye, a show everyone. Next week we've got Connor Dragotas on the Mosh Tourette. Next week we've got uh, Cliff Maloney Jr., president of Yale. See y'all. Thank Bye. you for the time. Thank